Okay. If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 6? Maybe you've got it on your phone. Go ahead and open it up on your phone. There's something Charles Spurgeon never said. <laughs> he was a preacher back in the 1800s. Okay, so open, it, open up a Bible, or there's some in the, in the racks around you. You can open them up there. And if you don't own a Bible, we've got free Bibles in the back. Be sure and grab one today when you leave. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Very, very important that you own that. So hear me again. Those are free back there if you want to take one with you today. Acts chapter 6, and you'll see the verses up on the screen as well. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question as you're turning there for you to consider. You can fill in the blank. My number one worry today is... And you don't have to shout it out, okay? Keep it to yourself, but I bet in the moment that I asked it, it immediately popped in your mind. Probably don't need much coaching. Money, health, jobs, relationships. My number one worry today is blank. So I'm going to ask you to take that and not deny that it's there because it's a reality. We all worry to some degree. Scripture talks a lot about not worrying a whole lot. Take that worry and just kind of put it on the shelf. Let it sit there because we're going to come back to it. We don't want to just shove it off to the side. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to step into Acts chapter 6. And I want to explain what's going to happen this morning. I'm going to teach for about 12 minutes, 15 minutes, into the text. And then we're going to have an intermission. But you don't get to leave, okay? So this is kind of an intermission where you get to participate because what we're going to do is we're going to have a a visual reminder of something that's coming out of the text this morning, very visual for us to participate in, and then we'll jump back in and finish it. So about 12 minutes or so, don't be surprised when a few people join me up here. Let's pray first and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we come before you and recognize that uh, indeed as we've declared through music, your word is alive. So we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we're going to see things that we can't see on our own. And we're going to discover more of you. So Father, what we're asking for is an encounter. That we would encounter you in a a fresh new way to the degree that it even changes the course of how we live our life this next week. Perhaps, Father, there's some here who need to release that fear to you or that worry. Right now, we'll be content to have it not dominate our life and and dominate our thinking and just set it off on the side. So if if that's the greatest measure we can do right now, we would ask you to help us to eliminate those fears just so we can concentrate on you. We'll ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, in the study of Acts, we're working through these first five chapters, and we've discovered already that this message of the resurrection of Jesus has permeated throughout Israel. People are discovering who Jesus is, and they're learning about this story that someone was resurrected from the dead, and when they begin putting all the pieces together, they find that he's actually the Messiah, the one who came to deliver people from their sins, So as this message is rapidly expanding across this region, primarily in Jerusalem, but it's it's moving out into the country now, as we saw last week, what we find is thousands of people respond to it, and the church explodes in growth. Where we left off at last week was it was way more than 10,000 people. 
Now, as the church is exploding in growth, we find that what the disciples or the apostles in this case have actually done is they've fulfilled what Jesus asked them to do. Remember Acts 1.8? Jesus said, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, they did that. They were his witnesses in Jerusalem, in the capital city. And so as they were his witnesses, people responded. And now we find that to the degree in Acts chapter 5, they were actually accused by the leaders of the Supreme Court saying to them, stop this, you're permeating all of Jerusalem with this news of this Jesus. Well, they've done what Jesus asked them to do, so they're positioned to move outside of Jerusalem, to go into the region that Scripture talks about as Samaria, moving beyond the boundaries. But before they can do that, they've got to deal with the problem. And we find that problem in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. There's a degree of disorganization that has popped up. Let's go to verse 1. It says this, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it is accurate to say that you're a disciple. It might confuse you when you see that verse and it says the disciples were increasing. You might be thinking, wait, I thought there was like 12 disciples. How, How can they be increasing in number? Well, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. So if you're a student and he's the master, you're a disciple of the master. You're learning from him. So it's accurate to say this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a disciple. It is not accurate to say you're an apostle. An apostle belongs specifically to these individuals who are in the office of apostleship, but you are disciples. So the disciples, it says in verse 1, are increasing in number, and that's causing an administrative problem. Now, just how large the church has become at this point, we don't know, but where we left off last week, I said more than 10,000, it's actually more than 20,000. More than 20,000 people are in this church, so we discover right away the first church was a megachurch. And that's caused a really huge problem for the leadership because the congregation has swelled and it's caused this enormous task of oversight. So in verse 1, it says there's this complaint that arose among the Hellenistic Jews. Now, it's hard to gauge what a complaint is like. In the English language, complaint just means complaint. I'm, I'm unhappy with the DMV or I'm unhappy with the fact I got a speeding ticket or I'm unhappy with the quality of the movie. That, that's a complaint. This word complaint, though, in the Greek language has a specific meaning behind it. And, and I didn't put it in your notes this morning, but you'll see it up on the screen. And, and the way you pronounce it has a lot to do with it. So the word is this. It's gangusmos. But this is the way they would pronounce it. Gangusmos. So it, hear me on this. If, if you have kids that start complaining this week, you can turn to them and say, stop gongusmosing, because it's murmuring. It's murmuring to the degree that you begin grumbling. And the grumbling in this case is permeating throughout the entire congregation. People are complaining about something that's going on that should not be going on. What causes an entire people group to be overlooked? And in this case, being neglected with food. A little prejudice going on, it kind of feels like, right? It appears there's some attitude of superiority that's permeated this group, and it's rather widespread. So we're told there's these two factions. There's the Hellenistic Jews and the native-born Hebrews. That's what the verse says. Well, what's going on here? Let me differentiate it for you. There are people who are of the descent of Abraham who are of the bloodline of Abraham, but maybe their parents were captured in slavery. 
in captivity, or they themselves, and they were taken away to Rome, or perhaps they're in Cilicia, or in Asia Minor, or in Africa. And they're yet Jewish people. Well, they've been raised in a Greek culture. That's all they know. They know the Greek language. They know the Greek customs. Those are the Hellenistic Jews. But they find themselves back in Jerusalem for a specific reason. Now, on the other side of the coin, you've got the Hebrew Jews, those who are native-born. That means they've been born in Israel. They've been raised in Israel. They think Aramaic. They speak the language of Jesus. They speak Aramaic. Now, let's differentiate between these two. So we've got two people groups who are of different languages, yet of the same faith. They're Jewish. The Hellenistic Jews return to the homeland because as daddy gets older, he doesn't want to get buried in North Africa. He doesn't want to get buried up in Rome. He wants to go back to the promised land. So he brings his spouse and they relocate back to Jerusalem to be buried. That means there's a whole lot of widows in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. So think of it this way. During the period of time in the United States between like 1880, 1870, and 1930, when Ellis Island was operating at its peak, there were a lot of individuals coming across from Europe. Many individuals coming from Ireland who became laborers here in the United States. Many of the Irish descent individuals, after they went through Ellis Island, ended up in New York City. And in New York City, there's this area known as the Bronx. Well, the Bronx is called Little Ireland because so many Irish people settled there. You could translate that same frame of thinking over to this story because what you find is a people group who are United States citizens in their case, living in New York, but they're in the Bronx. These people who are Jewish citizens living in Jerusalem, but they found people of their own liking, of their own group, and they grouped them together. That caused those who were native-born Hebrews to begin to question them whether or not they were legitimate Jews. The Pharisees especially began looking down their very long noses at them questioning whether or not they were second-class citizens. Dr. Longenecker said it this way, they were frequently categorized by the native-born populace of Jerusalem as second-class Israelites. Now, this is about more than geography because there's another layer going on here. And the other layer is this. Since coming to Jerusalem, some of them have become Christians. They discovered who Jesus is. And they identify themselves with Jesus. So this whole new layer is this particular complication. In first century Israel, especially in Jerusalem, there was a system of national relief by which individuals could receive money from the temple. All week long, the temple would collect alms. They would collect donations for feeding the poor. And on Fridays, they would distribute the money back out to the widows and those who were very poor to feed and care for them. But these individuals, upon declaring themselves Christians, found that the poor baskets, the national relief system, was completely revoked. You're a Christ follower? Well, you don't get this food anymore. Now, what we've discovered in these first five chapters of Acts is that the church has really expressed unity towards one another. They're really drawing together. They're sharing their possessions. We know there's enough material to go around. People are selling real estate and bringing the cash, giving it to the apostles to distribute. So there's some amount of discrimination going on here. What we find is that just because you become a Christ follower doesn't mean you leave prejudice at the door. Sometimes prejudice carries over into the Christian life, and we see some example of prejudice right here. So let me summarize this for you really quickly so you understand the setting. You've got these Hellenists who speak mostly Greek. 
that means they probably need separate church services, separate meetings because they speak a different language. So it would be like having a church that has a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service. Like, who does that? Just for different people groups. Well, you find that right here. The problem is really acute. You've got elderly women without a family, not speaking the language, not knowing the customs, and now they're identified with Jesus. You talk about about the makings for chaos. Let's go to verse 2. Something's got to be done to restore the unity. So it says, verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. So they're recognizing this, this grievance is legitimate. This is real. Look how smart the apostles are. Even though the Hellenists have the grievance, they recognize the problem involves the entire congregation. It's all of us. So the apostles want total participation among the whole church to solve this. So verse 2 says they summon the congregation of the disciples. Notice right away, they're not assigning blame. They're not attempting to assign blame. They're solutions-oriented. Now, the 12 are the official teachers. They're the official preachers of this church. And they're saying it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Now, here's how tables is used there. There's a table that you would sit down at which you would exchange food together. You would prepare a meal and serve each other. But then there's another table that's used a table by which someone sat down on opposite sides of the table and money was exchanged, called the exchange table. In this case, money was handed from an individual who was collecting donations and giving it across the table to the person who needed the donations. In either example, they both apply here because what the apostles are saying, we can't do this table thing. We don't have enough time to do this. That's not our responsibility. So the actual interpretation of this is, What you're asking us to do is not pleasing in God's eyes. Why? Because they know their priority. Their priority is preaching and teaching and studying the Word of God and praying. If you've got a teacher who's absorbed in administration, they got no time left for study. So this isn't an issue of superiority. It's it's one of priority. These individuals know what their priorities are, so they're operating within the scope of their giftedness. Here at New Hope, I got this same privilege. I get to study 30 hours a week. Because I'm really fortunate to have an individual like Gary Post or other individuals who serve in administration here, like Gene or, or the different gals who work in the office, Michael with worship. Those things, of course, I couldn't do what he does anyways, but th- those things could become a huge distraction and you can't carry out what you're supposed to carry out. So we're really fortunate to have those layers here at New Hope. Move forward with me to verse 3 and look at their solution. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You notice it's not the table issue here. It's the administration of it. It's not the tables that's at issue. Now, here's here's what they're saying. To lead is going to require some specific responsibilities. First of all, they got to be believers, and they got to be people with quality character. That's why he says in verse 3, of good reputation. It means it's really essential because they're going to be entrusted with large amounts of money. People are selling real estate, bringing in not tens or hundreds of dollars, but thousands of dollars, and giving it to the apostles to feed the poor. So they're not only going to manage large sums of money, they're going to manage people. So they've got to have good reputation. And they've got to be full of the Spirit according to this. And that means they're fully yielded to God in every area of their life. 
Not going to movies they shouldn't be going to. Not buying subscriptions to magazines they shouldn't be buying subscriptions to. Not watching television shows they shouldn't be watching. Not talking about legalism. We're talking about people who are identified with Jesus, full of the Spirit. And of course, it lays in there, they're going to possess wisdom, meaning they got a capacity to apply biblical truth to every area of life. What you should be noticing here is big picture is there's operational structure emerging from what was a little church. When they were together and 120 people in the upper room now is morphed into thousands and they need some kind of structure put in place. Go forward to verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, there's a detail. All seven of them have Greek names, meaning they're probably part of the Hellenist group, meaning they speak the language, meaning they understand what's going on. They can address the problems here. What we should be noticing as a big picture is the apostles are making the proposal, but the entire church, the whole biblical community is making the decision. See, that that would tell us that sound leadership and really clear thinking always produces unity because what you see here is nobody's coming up with plan B. Nobody says, hey, I got a better idea than that. It says the whole congregation approved of this because they find this is really making sense to them. So they're going to do what you're about to see up here. They're laying their hands on some individuals. The first time in the New Testament where you ever see someone having hands laid on them is in Acts chapter 6. And it's a repeat of what happened in the Old Testament. Moses transferring authority over to Joshua saying you're going to carry the ball on this responsibility. Among us this morning are some individuals who have identified themselves as being willing to lead in the Stephen ministry. And so they're going to join me up here on the platform along with some of our elders and leaders of the church, and we're going to lay hands on them. So if you're waiting for the intermission, this is it, okay? Why don't you guys come on up here? And if, if you would stand on this first step, that would help a lot, and then we can stand behind you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay hands on them and pray for them. And I want to explain this laying on of hands. When someone is laying hands on an individual, what they're really saying is, we're with you in this, and we're transferring authority that we have, responsibility, over to you. So you're going to see this done this morning. We're going to pray for them. We're going to ask for you to pray with us. And Phil, stand in front of me. I'm going to place my hands on him, and we're going to do this among the leadership this morning. So would you join us, and here's how we're going to pray, that the authority that we have as leaders of the church will be transferred over to them, that God would bless them with wisdom as they carry out the Stephen ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and all the praise for the sensitive spirit and the uh, servant's attitude that you've given these individuals. We pray that you bless them in a mighty way, give them wisdom as they show your love throughout the community uh, representing this body. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for strength for the work that they are about to embark upon, Lord God. We pray for their families, 
for their support and for the filling of the Spirit. Father, we recognize that the responsibility that they have goes far beyond what men and women can do in our own ability. When they sit in hospital rooms with somebody who's gone through a trauma, when they sit across the table with somebody who's lost the job, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to flow through them, that your wisdom will permeate their mind as we transfer this authority and this responsibility to them, and they likewise share it with others, God, that they would be recognized as individuals who walk with you, and that you've prepared a path for them to advance the name of Jesus. Father, we praise you that the the Scripture tells us that that you are the, the God of hope. You're the Father of all mercies. And, and you're the God of all comfort. Those are the names you have. Psalm 147, 3 tells us that you heal up the brokenhearted and you bind up their wounds. And we know that sometimes you do this through us, and in this case, through these, these eight. First uh, Corinthians 1 tells us that, that uh, you comfort us so that we can comfort others who are broken and, and hurting. And so I, I thank you for raising up these eight Stephen ministry leaders and putting it on their hearts to train others to demonstrate the love of Christ to those who are in need. I, I pray that you'd empower them by your Holy Spirit and that you'd equip them to do what you've called them to do. Help them to, to leave a legacy of love and to reflect the love and the character of Jesus Christ in a way that reveals your love to those that they serve. We thank you for all that you will accomplish through them, not only in this church, but in this larger community that we serve. And we thank you most of all for the great gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the ultimate expression of your love for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, you guys, for coming up. So here's something interesting. Um, I laid out the book of Acts back in January, planning forward. And then we started working on the Stephen ministry thing somewhere around January or February and recognized we needed to commission them to carry out this responsibility, having no idea that we were going to actually do this when we hit Acts chapter 6. See, only God can bring those two things together. I'm not that smart. God, God just brought those together on this particular Sunday when we hit Acts chapter 6. So what we find when we come into verse 7 is something remarkable. Go with me to verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. See, they got the problem of this Hellenism thing solved. And with that issue solved, the community is again at peace. So you find in verse 7, the word of God is beginning to explode again. It keeps on spreading and getting bigger and bigger, and many people are coming to the faith. That's a direct result of freeing the apostles up to do what they're supposed to be doing. Here's the amazing detail. A great many of the priests are coming to Jesus. Is that not remarkable? I mean, it's so easy to read and just blow right on past it in that passage, but it's remarkable because these are individuals who are steeped in Judaism, it kind of feels like, if you're reading it the wrong way, like the inner circle of Judaism is beginning to crack. That's not what's really going on. See, the high priest is not what's mentioned here. This is not the high priest. 
This is not the Supreme Court. It's not the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This is the ordinary working priest, 8,000 of them who occupy Jerusalem, who serve at the temple over the course of 12 months. The working priest. Somebody sat down with them. Somebody sat down with them and explained who Jesus is. And they began putting all the pieces together. They can see this makes a perfect fit. It makes sense. And so they're making Jesus Lord of their life. That should tell us something, church. It tells us that a unified church, a well-taught church, is a powerful witness to the degree that it even causes those who were previously blind to the truth to now begin to see This has been a great reminder for me this week in this particular passage because this is a huge example to never, ever assume you know who is and who isn't going to respond to the gospel of Jesus. Don't we do that all the time? I do that. Nobody's nodding with me, so I must be the only one. We all do it. We assume someone's not going to respond to who Jesus is, and so we keep our mouths shut. But here's a prime example. The priest in Judaism are surrendering their lives to Jesus. Matter of fact, as we go further into Acts, you're going to see even the Pharisees begin coming to Jesus. Let's move forward into the next verse. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, here's the reason we get some background on Stephen, because all of chapter 7 is dedicated to Stephen. And so he gives us a little bit of detail. This is an individual who's not an apostle. If you weren't paying attention a couple verses ago, Stephen's name was mentioned as one of the seven. This is a guy who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, according to verse 5. Yet he's humble enough to serve, and so God's given him opportunities to point people to Jesus. And that's what we see him doing here in verse 8. Now, when it says he's full of faith and he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of grace and he's full of power, the word full in the New Testament means he's filled up right to the top. I mean, you can't cram any more in him. He's got lots of God with him. So we're told specifically he's controlled by faith and he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. This reveals something about Stephen. When he goes on trial before the Supreme Court, you're going to see just part of it this morning, it reveals what he really believes. He believes that God controls history, and he brings that out in chapter 7. He believes that God controls his life. He brings that out in his argument before the Supreme Court. He believes, like Paul, that whether you live or die, if you belong to Jesus, you're his for eternity. This this is the way Paul said it, Romans 14.8, if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. That's a great truth, church. That's a promise from God. So Stephen understands something. He understands that Jesus fits everything for being the one identified as a Messiah. He also believes that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, even though he personally didn't get to see it. And he believes that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and that he's coming again. All of that comes out in chapter 7, so that's why it says he's full of God's grace and he's full of power. And as one of the seven, one of the details that we talked about earlier is that the seven would have wisdom. So we've got a guy full of grace, full of power, full of faith, who's also got wisdom on him. Where would you naturally expect to find someone like that? He's going after his own. He's going after the other Hellenist, 
the other Greek-speaking individuals who were living in Jerusalem. So you find when you come into the next verse, he's taking his natural desires, his passion for people, along with everything God has blessed him with, and he takes it into a synagogue. Specifically, when you come into verse 9, Dr. Luke calls it the synagogue of the freedmen. And he's speaking of people who used to be in slavery or their parents were in slavery. Now they're living in Jerusalem. They speak Greek. They've got their own synagogue, and that's where Stephen shows up. Verse 9, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Those cities that are mentioned there are talking about Asia Minor, North Africa, Southern Europe, Cilicia. That's where Paul is from, meaning Paul was one of the Hellenists, a person living outside of Israel and relocated to Israel. These men from this synagogue came together and they argued with Stephen. Now, argue is the word suzateo, and it means debate. It doesn't mean quarrel. It means there's an actual theological debate going on here. I don't know specifically what he's debating with them about, but I'm guessing it's centered on Jesus. I'm guessing it's centered on the death and the resurrection and how living through the law will never get you to God, but living through Jesus will get you to God. So that's putting these individuals on high alert. All the alarm bells are going off. Notice what Stephen's doing. He's not only serving, he's using his wisdom to begin reaching into the lives of people. While he's serving, he's using critical thinking. God's blessed him with wisdom. That's one thing you can be praying for, church. God says, you ask me for wisdom, I will not upbraid you. I'll give it to you plentifully. So you pray for wisdom. I pray for wisdom for my children all the time. You can ask God for wisdom, and he will increase it. So in this case, he's seeing, and he's understanding, and he's thinking on a deeper level. Whatever the precise issue is that they're debating with him about, they're unable to cope. Next verse. Verse 11, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So they're unable to win the debate, right? So what do you do when you can't win the debate? You change the tactics. They frame them. And they're using something here specific. When it says they secretly introduced, induced, in your notes this morning, I included one of the Greek words, it's hupobalo. It means they coached false witnesses. They coached false witnesses on what to say about Stephen. Where else in Scripture do you see that in the New Testament? Specifically, who is their false witnesses brought against, church? Yeah, it's, it's the Jesus answer, right? When Jesus was on trial. See, they did the exact same thing against Jesus, so they think, well, it worked on him. Let's do it against Stephen. We'll do the exact same thing. So as a result, they drag him away. Do, do you notice one little detail? Did, did, did you notice that they put God after Moses? This man blasphemes against Moses. And by the way, God too. See, it says a whole lot about their ranking. The, the law, the law of Moses is the ultimate And God's thrown in there just to induce people to anger. So they drag him away and they bring him before the council. This dragging is violent. It's not like when they arrested the apostles. They gently led the apostles to the Supreme Court. This is a physical dragging across the city into the Supreme Court. The opposition is formidable. 
And they begin spreading rumors across town. Stephen is a blasphemer. Stephen speaks against the temple. Stephen insults Moses. Stephen should be killed. Stephen can't be trusted. And it begins spreading so that you notice in the passage, all of Jerusalem begins turning against him. The anger is really amped up. What's going on in Stephen's mind right now? I asked you when you came in here this morning what the number one fear is on your mind. The thing that you worry about the most. What do you think Stephen's worrying about in this moment? He knows the Supreme Court is the same court that killed Jesus. He knows he's been accused of the same things that Jesus was accused of. Speaking against the temple, speaking against the law, claiming to be something. So he's before this same group. Take you back to verse 5 very quickly. Verse 5 said that Stephen is identified as a person who's full of faith. You may never before this morning ever thought of yourself as a person who's full of faith. I want to help you with that thought. We said to be full of something means you're filled up to the tippy top. You can't cram any more in. Stephen's identified as being a person who's crammed up with faith. How does he do that? In the Bible, believers who are full of something, in this case full of faith, means that this is a believer's response to God's character. In other words, what they know to be true about God is evidenced in their life. So let's put it in real practical terms. We trust in his trustworthiness. Here's a more eloquent way of saying it. We faith his faithfulness. Because he's faithful, we put our faith in his faithfulness. It's not faith in ourselves. It's not our capacity. It's God's capacity. So we trust in his trustworthiness. So what's going on in Stephen's mind right now? Stephen is a person who trusts God's trustworthiness. He's characterized by the character of God. How do we translate that into our walk with Christ? Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm there for you. If you belong to me, if you are a believer in me, I'll see you through what's going on in Stephen's mind. His confidence is in God's character. Jesus is God. And so his confidence is placed in what Jesus promised, even in the face of death. Here's where I find most people struggle. I've been there myself, so I totally identify with this. Many people can trust God for the eternal salvation, but have a really hard time trusting him with the everyday issues of life. I mean, God, you can save me from hell, absolutely. But this money thing, I'll keep that to myself, thank you. God, you can keep me from being damned for eternity. But this relationship thing, I think I'll worry about that one myself. So God says he wants to take everything, all our worries, all our fears, because he's competent, he's capable. Stephen's not like that in the way of an ordinary person. He trusts fully in God, concentrates on what God has called him to do. And so he leaves the consequences to God in God's hands to the degree that even when people lie about you and deceive you, as you see in the next verse, it says, verse 13, 
they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. See, this is the exact same charge as they brought against Jesus. The reality is, church, when you're challenged on the things of Jesus, Jesus is the one who's on trial. In this case, this is a prime example. Jesus is the one who's on trial here. To reject the witness of Jesus is ultimately to reject Jesus. That's what the sham trial is all about. Now, they're not necessarily putting words in Stephen's mouth. They're twisting the words because Jesus did talk about the temple being destroyed. And we know that it was in A.D. 70, Jesus speaking prophetically about that. Because what Jesus was ultimately saying is, I am the center of worship. Stop putting your confidence in this building. It's about who I am and what I'm doing for you. Verse 14 begins to land this plane. It says, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And you can expect, they said that with some degree of condescension. When they got to Jesus' name, it was with disdain in their voice. See, you can tell what Stephen's been talking about just by that passage right there. He's been preaching Jesus. He's been talking about salvation and forgiveness in Jesus, that you can't get to God through the law because they're saying he's speaking against the law. Well, the law says you've got to earn your way. But what we know is the law was really pointing the way to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who's full of grace and truth. See, the New Testament has this radical reorientation. It's not about what I can do to make God happy or to please him. It's about what God has done for me that sets me free right? No guilt, church. You're guilt-free this morning if you're a believer in Jesus. To a first-century Jew, that's radical teaching. Heresy. It's blasphemy. How could you speak against the law of Moses? I said, Jesus came to set straight. So despite this intense opposition, Stephen never backs down. So we come into this last verse, and I expect at this point in the Supreme Court, the room fell dead silent. It says this, verse 15, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. See, God answers the false charges by putting his glory on Stephen. And he lets people see this this stuff that you're accusing him of is not accurate. What you're seeing here, church, is something that's experienced by no one else in the entire Bible except for Moses. Moses coming down Mount Sinai after having been in the presence of God, we're told that his face began to effervesce. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. Scripture just says that Stephen's face is glowing pure with the purity of heaven like an angel, like the face of an angel. What God is doing is he's showing his approval of what Stephen has done in the same way he put his approval on Moses. Metaphorically speaking, you're identifying someone here who's in the presence of God. Stephen is that individual. So the attention is riveted on him. Are these charges true? And then they notice this glow. The stage is absolutely set. The presiding officer over the court, meaning the high priest, has heard the charges leveled, and he asks the question, how do you plead? You go to chapter 7 and verse 1, that's pretty much what he says. So a man who's about to be martyred experiences a pre-death vision of heaven. How amazing is that? You know what that means to us, church? That means you don't want to miss next week. 
because we're not going to chapter 7 this morning. You'd be here till 3 o'clock if I did. So you don't want to miss this. We'll, we'll just say it this way. He brings it. He absolutely brings it in chapter 7. Let's come back to your question. My number one fear today is my number one worry. We've already seen that Stephen's trust is in God's trustworthiness. He's characterized by God's character. So he faiths in God's faithfulness. That's where it's all anchored. Meaning like you this morning, his trust is in the statement of Jesus. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm right there with you. When Americans are asked what their number one fear is, overwhelmingly, making everything else pale in comparison, Americans say, not public speaking, that's right up there, they say, my number one fear is death. Fear of the unknown. I don't know what's on the other side. My number one concern. Uh, That's a reality in the lives of individuals. It It doesn't mean the other things are insignificant. It just means that's at the very top. Stephen has recognized he can release that particular fear because we already saw in Romans, he can say like Paul says, if I die, I'm the Lord's. If I live, I'm the Lord's. If I live or die, I belong to the Lord. What have I got to lose? It's all in his hands. See, when the number one fear goes away, everything else begins to crumble, doesn't it, church? But we still carry those anxiety issues. We still carry those fears. So I'm going to pray with you right now. And I'm going to ask you in the midst of my praying that maybe you could just release that fear to the one who's capable of taking it away from you. God said he wants to take them. When you gain release of a fear, it's because you've received closure on an issue. God has closed the issue of your eternal destiny. He says, I got you. You put your confidence in Jesus, I got you. So if we're worrying worrying this morning about money and jobs and relationships or our children, those are secondary. They're not insignificant, but those can be released to God the Father as well. It's just really hard to do. So we have to say we faith in His faithfulness. Our character is identified by the character of God. Do we trust in His trustworthiness? Let me pray with you about that as we bring this to an end. Father, we come before you with one of the hardest things to do, and that's to release things that we hold very precious, and those are our anxieties. And I know you don't take them lightly because you speak about it a lot in your word. And so I I pray that those anxieties that are represented in this auditorium this morning, and you know each one intimately by name, that you would surround each individual with the power of your Holy Spirit. Put your loving arms around us, Father, and remind us that you want to take away those fears. It's for freedom that you came. Not that we would live life bound up, but that we would live in freedom in Jesus Christ. Father, just knowing that Jesus defeated the ultimate fear when he defeated death is enough for many of us but we still find ourselves holding on to things that we worry about. So God, I ask right now, just hear the voices of your people saying, I release it. I release it to you. Father, take those things. Remove them from us. 
so that we can focus on the higher responsibility that you've called us to, and that's to live out this life boldly. So I ask that you would replace fear with boldness, that we would represent you well. Father, we would ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our soon coming King, and all God's people said, Amen.